As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Would you ever call dinosaurs beautiful? Few of us would, but dinosaur aesthetics is actually a hot field right now in paleontology. In this two-part episode, we're going to examine how the artistic portrayal of dinosaurs has shifted over time. It's a story of princes and goons with sledgehammers, of palaces and drunken parties held inside dinosaur statues. We'll also examine how those shifts in dinosaur aesthetics have affected and even distorted our view of what dinosaurs were really like. It's undeniably thrilling to take flat, lifeless bones and resurrect them, to make creatures run and jump and snap and growl for the first time in millions of years. Paleontology is a real creative act. But there's a risk there as well. Art can overpower us, and some early blunders in dinosaur art still taint how we view dinosaurs to this day. Dinosaur art can be seductive, certainly, but there's never a seduction without a little bit of danger. Hi, I'm Sam Keen, and you're listening to The Disappearing Spoon, a topsy-turvy, sciency history podcast, where footnotes become the real story. Fittingly enough, the story of dinosaur beauty began in a rather stunning place, oh. a palace. Oh the Crystal Palace in London astounded the world when it opened in 1851 as part of a world's fair. All the walls and ceilings were made of pristine glass. People felt like they were walking around inside dinnerware crystal. It was a brilliant fusion of art and engineering, and over six million people paid a penny apiece to wander around inside and gape. When the fair ended, the government couldn't bear to tear the palace down. It was too gorgeous. So it was dismantled pane by pane and reconstructed in another park five miles south. And next to the palace, Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband, decided to establish an outdoor museum full of animal sculptures from different eras of Earth's history. 
Albert was especially keen to see statues of a newly named order of so-called fearfully great lizards, the dinosaurs. But Albert's generosity actually presented a dilemma for scientists. All that scientists knew about dinosaurs then came from some scattered bones and teeth. They had no dinosaur skin, no soft tissue, no faces. So what did dinosaurs actually look like? It's a difficult question. Imagine a human face. The most salient features are the nose and the lips and the color of the eyes, none of which you can reconstruct from bones. Or imagine an elephant. A scientist once quipped that if we didn't have elephants alive today as models, we'd probably see fossilized elephant skulls and have no idea they had trunks or floppy ears. We'd envision them as giant furry hamsters instead. The moral of the story is that recreating animals from bones alone is tricky. During the Renaissance, Leonardo dissected cadavers and used that knowledge of anatomy to inspire and inform his art. Dinosaur artists were trying to do much the same thing, but especially back then, they had far less material to work with than Leonardo. There was a real danger of mistakes and distortions. Prince Albert nevertheless wanted his dinosaurs, and the artist who stepped up and took on this responsibility was Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins. Hawkins was a well-known sculptor and wildlife illustrator at that time. He'd done several pictures for Charles Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle. But for him, this was the commission of a lifetime. And not just because it came from Prince Albert. He'd actually be doing pioneering science here. There's, of course, nothing stopping you or me from sculpting some dinosaurs of our own in our backyard. But we've already been exposed to thousands of dinosaur pictures and toys and skeletons in museums. We can't escape that influence, and whatever we've seen before will inevitably color our interpretation now. Hawkins had no such baggage. These were the most dominant animals in the history of Earth, and it fell to him to conjure up the very first 3D renditions of them. To be sure, Hawkins did draw on frogs and lizards as models, and a few prominent scientists advised him during the process. But the final product was his vision, and his vision alone. It's a privilege no one has ever had before and that no one will ever have again. Hawkins sculpted the beasts from wire, clay, and cement, and they resembled nothing you'll ever glimpse in nature. They were stout beasts with fat, pachyderm-like legs and less neck than your average pro wrestler. One species looked like a crocodile head fused onto a leathery lion. Some species were covered in scales and had huge spikes running along their spines. And those teeth, big, glistening chompers, just waiting to tear you apart. The most impressive aspect of the sculptures was their size. One of them, an iguanodon, stretched 30 feet long. It was hollow inside and roomy enough to fit 20 scientists in there. How do we know this? Because on December 31st, 1853... 20 scientists did, in fact, cram inside to ring in the New Year with a prehistoric-themed feast. The invitations for the feast were sent out on imitation pterodactyl wings, and the scientists hung a chandelier for the occasion. They dined on cod and oysters, on turkey, ham, and pigeons. They slurped up soups and sauces and mayonnaise. They gobbled jellies and pears and plums. They got drunk on sherry and port. And of course, they sang songs. If you had crept close to the iguanodon that winter night and put your ear to its mouth, you wouldn't have heard it hissing or grunting or snarling. This iguanodon crooned. 
All night long, the drunken scientist wailed out old favorites, as well as one ditty penned just for the occasion. The jolly old beast is now deceased, but there's life in him again. Yes, there's life in him again. Hey! Now, I made the melody up there, but they really did sing those lyrics. All in all, it was a New Year's no one would ever forget. Hawkins made other creatures for the park as well, ancient crocodiles and mammals. The landscape was a marvel, too. The beast sat on three fake islands surrounded by an artificial pool, and pumps produced a tide that rose and fell throughout the day. But the dinosaurs were the stars. On the first day the park opened, 40,000 people crammed in to see the dinosaurs, paying five shillings each, 25 bones today. They were awestruck. There's a theory that, psychologically, we're fascinated with dinosaurs because they're both scary and dead. We get a frisson of fear without any real danger, and Hawkins' beast sure delivered. Their scales and claws and rows of teeth sent quivers up and down the Victorian spine. In fact, park officials quickly ran into an unforeseen problem. People were so mesmerized by the teeth that they started wading out to the islands and stealing them, yanking them right out of the dinosaurs' heads. Not even the Crystal Palace could compete with the sublime appeal of these terrible lizards. Every city in the world was jealous of Hawkins' menagerie, but none more so than New York. In the mid-1800s, New York needed what we call now a rebranding effort. The city had a reputation as a crass, money-grubbing Gomorrah. Compared to Philadelphia or Boston, NYC lacked refinement and culture. It was the Las Vegas of its day. So, city leaders decided to go highbrow and build a dinosaur museum in their new Central Park. A glass and cast iron building with a huge arched roof. America's very own Crystal Palace. They would call it the Paleozoic Museum. In a coup, the officials secured Benjamin Hawkins himself to make the dinosaurs. Like the London Park, Hawkins would set the sculptures on an island amid tropical greenery. But unlike the London Park, the Paleozoic Museum would showcase American animals only. Officials requested huge fishes, enormous birds, giant sloths and mastodons, and other ponderous, uncouth mammals. And of course, plenty of dinosaurs. Hawkins arrived in the United States in 1870 to study fossils in Philadelphia and Washington for inspiration. And inspired he was. He was especially taken with what are now called dryptosaurs, ferocious carnivores that stretch 25 feet long. He envisioned a scene with a dryptosaur attacking and killing a duck-billed dinosaur. Two other dryptosaurs would be devouring a second victim in the background. Hawkins quickly rented a workshop in New York to get started. Meanwhile, city officials hired crews to start digging the Paleozoic Museum's foundations near Central Park's southwest corner. Everything was going swimmingly. Hawkins was convinced that the scene with the dryptosaurs would surpass even his Crystal Palace creations. It had death and drama, nature red in tooth and claw. It would be his masterpiece. And it might well have been, if not for one unforeseen obstacle. William Boss Tweed. Have you ever wanted to appreciate books or movies or music from another culture? Do you have a big trip coming up and want to get beyond the tourist spots and immerse yourself in local culture? No matter what the reason, Rosetta Stone is the language program for you. 
Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Millions have used it. Rosetta Stone knows what works for getting started, remembering what you've learned, and motivating you to stay on track. Plus, the built-in true accent feature gives you live feedback to improve your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. So don't put off learning that language. Start today. For a limited time, Disappearing Spoon listeners get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Boss Tweed was something of an uncouth mammal himself, a rotund political machine boss who was arguably the most crooked politician in New York's history, which is saying something. He and his cronies stole at least $30 million from the coffers of New York over his career, possibly up to $200 million. That's $5 billion today. And it was Tweed's greed that doomed the Paleozoic Museum. The museum's construction budget was just $300,000, a rounding error compared to what he stole. He nevertheless demanded his cut on principle, and he was furious when the museum construction crews refused to pay kickbacks. In a deft bureaucratic move, he quickly consolidated several New York park boards into one two-man team. And wouldn't you know it, but two lackeys of his filled both seats. The lackeys immediately halted construction. And when that didn't lead to kickbacks either, they had the museum's foundations demolished. Hawkins was shocked. I mean, he knew New York was a little rough and tumble, but this was downright Visigothic. He kept working on the dinosaur statues anyway, hoping he could sell them to the Smithsonian Institution. But the more he thought about Tweed's bullying, the angrier he got. So in March 1871, he began speaking up. He publicly denounced Tweed and his henchmen for their attacks on art and science in the city of New York. It must have felt good to unload on Tweed like that, real good. But Hawkins realized he was in over his head. Tweed didn't take kindly to public ridicule, and he retaliated in classic New York political machine fashion. That is to say, a few weeks later, several goons of Tweed's broke into Hawkins' studio and smashed his sculptures with sledgehammers. And to make double sure that Hawkins never worked in New York again, the goons broke in a second time a few weeks later and smashed all his molds. According to different accounts, the remains were either buried in Central Park or dumped into a lake. Hawkins' masterpiece was now rubble. 
With the museum dead and his art in ruins, a disgusted Hawkins returned to England. The experience had confirmed every bad stereotype he had of how crass and crude New York was. His Crystal Palace animals can still be seen in London now, 150 years later. But we can all blame Boss Tweed for the fact that no Hawkins dinosaurs stalk Central Park today. Even though his masterpiece got destroyed, Hawkins was quite influential. He made sculptures and drawings of many other dinosaurs over his lifetime. And while scientists revised their views on certain details, the initial vision of dinosaurs that Hawkins and his advisors portrayed would dominate paleontology for the next century plus. According to this view, dinosaurs were thick-limbed, thick-witted, dumb, lumbering beasts with tiny skulls and vacant eyes, little more than giant lizards. Only gradually, over many decades, has this view of dinosaurs receded. Only gradually have we come to realize that dinosaurs differed from modern lizards in key ways. Much of the evidence for this new view of dinosaurs comes from, of all things, their legs. Most reptiles have sprawling limbs that jut out almost horizontally from their sides. Think lizards and crocodiles. Reptiles that are built like this run into trouble with their lungs. When most reptiles run, they have to twist side to side. This squeezes their lungs and prevents fresh air from entering. As a result, many reptiles can't run and breathe at the same time, which severely limits how fast and how far they can run in one stretch. Hawkins dinosaurs showed this trait as well. And since reptiles built this way are generally sluggish and can't run very fast or very far, dinosaurs were deemed clumsy as well. But starting in the 1960s, scientists took a closer look at the angles at which dinosaur legs and hips fit together. And they realized that many dinosaurs had legs more like pillars positioned beneath them. Legs more like mammal legs. And if these dinosaurs had legs like mammals, they probably moved like mammals too, able to sprint or roam for miles. This fact has neurological implications as well. Reptiles don't need fancy neuromuscular systems. They rarely run far. And because their bellies almost scrape the ground, it's hard for them to tip over. Mammals can tip, and we're far more spry and agile when we run. This in turn requires bigger, faster brains to coordinate movement and keep us balanced. By that same logic, dinosaur brains were probably bigger than once expected as well. Other evidence implies that some dinosaurs were warm-blooded and cared for their young, too. The more you look at the overall behaviors of dinosaurs, in fact, the less that they resemble lizards and the more that they resemble, well, us. Although paleontologists still disagree about many of these issues, by the 1980s, most of them had abandoned their view of dinosaurs as big, drowsy reptiles. They were spry and agile instead. Less Barney, more Velociraptor. Several biologists have even suggested that, if planet Earth had avoided the asteroid that wiped out most dinosaurs 65 million years ago, then dinosaurs might have evolved someday into intelligent, tool-using creatures with culture and technology, just like we did. Jim Morrison's lizard kings might have been real. So why did it take scientists so long to see what dinosaurs were really like? Well, for one thing, especially in the 1800s, they were often working with fragmentary remains. It was very difficult work. But partly, I think, it's because of the art. Pictures and sculptures by Hawkins and others got stamped into people's minds, and they were very hard to shake. Art is extremely powerful, and in this case, it overpowered the science. 
And while the 1850s vision of sluggish dinosaurs was finally overthrown, one thing about Hawkins' beasts has remained stubbornly persistent over the decades. Their coloration. Everything we knew about their anatomy and their behavior had been rewritten by the year 2000. But they looked just as dull and drab then as they did in Prince Albert's day. At least until recently. Most people don't realize it, but there's currently a second dinosaur revolution going on. One that's every bit as exciting as the first one. It involves dinosaur aesthetics. In fact, knowing what colors dinosaurs are can tell you a surprising amount about their sleep patterns, their habitats, even their sex life. In the next episode, we're going to hear about the paleontologist who spurred that revolution. We'll also hear why he was such an unlikely revolutionary. Because deep down, he hated dinosaurs and everything they were. To learn more, visit samkeen.com slash podcast. There, you can find more incredible stories from my books, or learn how to book me as a speaker at your school or event. Also, you can ask questions for me to answer on air, or suggest stories for future episodes. Finally, you can learn how to find transcripts, bonus episodes, and signed goodies there by becoming an official supporter. And if you like this podcast, please do your part to keep it alive by becoming a patron through samkeen.com slash podcast. I'm listener supported. Spread the word to others as well, both online and in person. Word of mouth means a lot. Also, subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or other places and leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening to The Disappearing Spoon. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.